0: I invite you to turn with me to the book of Psalms, <clears throat> Psalm 8 this morning. Uh, this month we're looking at uh, select psalms as a, a guide to thinking about the meaning and the significance of the first coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, and today we're going to look at uh, Psalm 8. <clears throat> Let's hear once again the word of the Lord. Psalm 8, to the choir master, according to the Giddeth, a psalm of David. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the sea. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Well, some of you probably remember, <clears throat> and some of you likely know about the Voyager space probes, which were launched back in 1977, <clears throat> part of NASA's uh, attempts to understand uh, our solar system uh, by taking advantage of the alignment of the planets. Something that I think only happens like every 100 and. 70, I think it's 76, 176 years, uh, NASA was able to basically slingshot uh, these probes into space using the gravitational pull of these massive heavenly bodies. And <clears throat> so they are now uh, billions of miles uh, from the Earth, and you can go online to NASA's jet propulsion website and get real Time updates uh, as to the distance and speed of these uh, probes. And as of 2012, Voyager 1 became the first man made object to reach interstellar space. I had to look up what interstellar space is because I wasn't quite sure. And it was described as the space between the stars crossing over the boundary of our solar system. Escaping the orbit of our sun. Uh, currently, Voyager 1 is approaching 15 billion miles from the earth. I, mean, I can't even fathom that. Uh, something human beings made is approaching 15 billion miles away from uh, the earth in space. But as mind-boggling as that is, this unmanned mission it is nothing in comparison to the mission of the son of God who came down from above the heavens to the space between the straw what is man that God should come down and dwell among us who are we that God should be made a little lower Than the angels? These are questions Psalm 8 helps us to ponder with an awe inspiring sense of wonder and astonishment. Uh, So, this morning, what I want to do is simply reflect on two themes we find in Psalm 8. And I think we'll discover that both are uh, very related to the incarnation of. Christ, who you remember from last week in Psalm 2, is identified as the eternally begotten Son of the Father. So the two themes are, first, the the majesty of God revealed, and secondly, the dignity of man restored. Beginning with the first, it's hard to miss the main theme in Psalm 8, because it brackets this psalm. In verse one and in verse nine, the same exact exclamation of praise: "O oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name <clears throat> in all the earth!" And you don't you don't have to be a, a NASA rocket scientist to to figure out that this psalm is a psalm of praise, marveling at the majesty of God. And yet, we cannot fail to notice what happens between the beginning and the end of this psalm. Although Psalm 8 opens and ends with the same declaration of praise, it is not simply a repetition. There is something amazing that takes place in the middle here. A quantum leap, if you will, of divine revelation bursting forth in the space between these two identical expressions of praise. And the challenge for us this morning is to really come to terms with how the exact same words of wonder are transposed into a higher register by the time we get to the end of this psalm. And so notice verse 1 begins with God's majesty in all of the earth and God's glory uh, being set above the heavens. And so earth and heaven in The world of the Hebrew Bible, that is a way of summarizing the whole of the created order. Everything in all of creation. And Psalm 8 says it all displays the majesty and glory of the one who made it. Actually, when Psalm 8 uses the language of how majestic is your name in all the earth, a lot of commentaries point out that the psalm is using temple language to describe God's majesty in the earth as we'll see this in our series of Deuteronomy uh, Lord willing the temple was the particular place where God promised to cause his name to dwell over 20 times in the book of Deuteronomy Moses identifies the temple as the place where Yahweh the Lord would make his name to dwell and yet Psalm 8 and envisions the universal majesty of God's name filling not only the temple, but every square inch of the earth as well. A world where, as the prophets describe it, where the glory of God uh, covers the earth as the waters cover the sea. And the second half of verse 1 declares, you've set your glory above the heavens. Now, notice it does not say you've set your glory in the heavens. So that's of course true, as the Psalm uh, Psalm 19 will say. The heavens declare the glory of God, and uh, the, the work of His hands declare His <clears throat> uh, invisible attributes. But the Psalm says, "You have set your glory above the heavens." Uh, God's glory. Uh, surpasses the brightest glories of the created order. His is a glory that transcends all created things. That is beyond our comprehension. It is above the heavens. Now, that sets us up for verse 2. Because if you look at verse 2, things take a surprising turn. The psalm is still marveling at the majesty of God. How God reveals his majesty. It is displayed in all the earth. His glory is above the heavens. Praises are mounting up higher and higher. So we might think, expect things to continue to ascend into this kind of crescendo. But look at how the divine majesty is set on display in verse 2. Out of the mouths of babies and infants... You have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger right? we've, we've descended from glory above the heavens to the mouths of babbling babies. God whose infinite majesty is revealed in the throughout the earth and his glory is high above the heavens, has ordained that his might and his power be displayed. But how? How? He, if you think about it, he, he could do it any way he pleased. Everything is at his disposal. He could demonstrate his sovereignty any way he pleases. He could. He could use the forces of nature. He could raise up an earthly army. As Jesus put it, he could call forth a legion of angels. You name it, there are all kinds of different ways God could still his enemies. But no one would guess what we find in Psalm 8. That it is out of the mouths of babies and infants that the Lord has established strength. It is an astonishing Revelation of the majesty of God. Almighty God chooses to use tiny babies and suckling infants as the means by which he overcomes his enemies. Why? Well, here's the biblical principle at work. God chose to use what is weak in the eyes of the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even, as Paul says, the things that are not to bring to nothing the things that are. This is how God loves to work, because the humbler the instrument, the greater the glory. The humbler the instrument, the greater the glory. God told the snake all the way back in the Garden of Eden that the offspring... The child of the woman would one day crush his head. God used Moses, who was as a baby placed in a basket, put in a river to redeem his people out of Egypt. God chose to use the youngest, David, in his, the youngest in his family, to defeat Goliath of Gath. Because the humbler the instrument, the greater the glory. The mouth of a baby is a figure of total helplessness and dependence. And you think about it. What comes out of the mouth of an infant? I could make the sound for you. and Maybe that would make it more memorable. But what comes out of the mouth of, of an infant is inarticulate suckling and crying, right? Uh, sounds of weakness and dependence and need. And according to Psalm 8... These dependent cries for help when directed to God, the dependent cries of God's people when directed to the Lord our God are like swords, like spears, like arrows of Almighty God. God uses the childlike cries of his people to overcome his opponents because the humbler the instrument, the greater the glory. And this principle was seen in a wonderful way during the first advent of the Lord Jesus. He was himself born a helpless infant, exposed uh, throughout his early years to the vulnerabilities of peasant life. And eventually, he was left to experience the depredations of political tyrants. His public ministry was... Uh, unceasingly, the target of, of criticism uh, launched at him by the religious establishment. He had, he had no access to the usual levers of power and influence in the world. The rabbis and teachers of the law rejected his claims as they all together conspired against him. But do you remember the scene recorded for us in Matthew chapter 21? when the Lord Jesus entered the city of Jerusalem and uh, went through the gates and then eventually made his way to the temple. And Matthew says there he did wonderful things. Who was it, who was it that began to sing songs of praise, Hosanna to the son of David? It was not uh, a powerful It was not the scholars of the law. It was not the elites of society. It was coming from the mouths of little children. And when the authorities heard these declarations of praise, they were scandalized. And they asked Jesus, Have you heard what they are saying about you? And Jesus said to them in response, quoting Psalm chapter 8, verse 2, Yes. Have you not read, out of the mouths of infants and nursing babies, you have prepared praise? You see, the Pharisees heard the cries of the children as just another reason to hate Jesus. You know, how embarrassing, how inappropriate, how uncouth. Look, look at what they're doing. But Jesus heard in their words the very praises ordained by God from eternity. And notice this very carefully. He heard in their hosannas praises which are due according to Psalm 8 to the Lord our Lord, to Yahweh our Adonai, whose name is majestic in all the earth. The praise is directed at him and God is deploying, he's using the hosannas Of little children to identify his son as the Lord who had come. The hosannas of the little children identify the one riding on a donkey. As the the Lord whose name is majestic in all the earth. And according to Zechariah chapter 9. As the king whose dominion. Hold on to that idea of dominion. As the king whose dominion extends throughout all the earth. And whose reign means salvation for his people. And and who is it? Who is it, again, that declares the son of God, the descendant of David, has finally come? Not the wise and the learned, but little children. God stills his enemies... With the mouths of babes. And so you see Psalm 8 is rejoicing. It's really reveling in the ways that God manifests his majesty. It is seen in the works of his hands. His glory transcends the heavens. But his majesty is also displayed in weakness and humility. Babies and infants illustrate the principle And they're not just a metaphor, they they are a participation in this reality that God uses humble instruments to display his strength. And of course, the greatest example is in the birth and life and death of the Lord Jesus himself, the savior of the world, who was born to poor parents, laid in a manger, he As he grew into adulthood and during his public ministry, he said he had no place to lay his head. He had no form or majesty, visible majesty that we should look at him. No beauty that we should desire him, Isaiah says. And he died the death of a slave and a cursed blasphemer. He was crucified in weakness, but in his weakness... God established his strength to still all of his and our enemies. And that brings us to the second theme that I want us to reflect on for a few moments together, the dignity of man restored. I wonder if you've ever gone outside on a clear evening, looked up at the heavens, and... Realize just how small and puny you really are. How small and insignificant you are in the grand scheme of things. and the grandness of the universe in which we inhabit. If sometimes we loom large in our own eyes, don't we? We can, we can easily see ourselves as the center of the universe. Everything revolves around us. We live in a me-centered universe but sometimes if we if we go outside and we have the right perspective and we look up at the heavens we are left with an impression of how puny and in some ways how insignificant we really are that's what's being described here in verses 3 and 4 when i look at your heavens the work of your fingers the moon and the stars which you've set in place what is man that you're mindful of him and the Son of man, that you care for him. Now that should <clears throat> raise uh, some kind of alert system in your mind. Son of man? That's a title in the Old Testament for the Messiah, isn't it? So hold on to that idea, because what we need to understand is this psalm, Psalm 8, is really about Jesus Christ. The Man, the son of man, but in him, Psalm 8 also contemplates the wonder of God's mindfulness of us. You know, when Voyager 1 was only about four billion miles away from the earth, a picture was taken and sent back to Earth, and the picture is just you know mostly black, and there's this tiny little dot that is earth in the picture. Just a tiny speck in the grand scheme of things. That picture led the famous astrophysicist uh, Carl Sagan to write that well-known book, uh, Pale Blue Dot. And in that book, he's essentially asking the same question we find here in Psalm 8. What what is man? Um, And I want you to listen to Carl Sagan's answer. These are his words. This is a quote. Uh, When I look at the heavens, what is man? That's the question. Here's his answer. The earth is a very small stage in a vast cosmic arena. Our posturing, our imagined self-importance, the delusion that we have some privileged position in the universe are challenged by this point of pale light. Our planet is a lonely speck in the great enveloping cosmic dark. In our obscurity, in all this vastness, There's no hint that help will come from elsewhere to save us from ourselves. What is man? Carl Sagan's answer a lonely species inhabiting a pale dot in a vast dark universe, and nobody is coming to save us. But look at how Psalm 8 answers the very same question What is man? First of all, it recognizes that the heavens and the earth are not, uh, they're not eternal. They're not a, a cosmic accidents, atoms colliding in eternity past and somehow over time producing the universe as we know it. No, the heavens and the earth are the work of the master craftsman. Who who put the moon and the stars in their place. I love the way the psalmist puts it. The heavens are the work of his fingers. Galaxies and solar systems. Stars and planets. The work of his fingers. It's the handiwork of almighty God. Who stands apart from and above. And independent from the created universe. Which he has made. And it's sheer vastness speaks of his power and his own infinite being but when it comes to human beings look at verse 5 David says two things that are true at the same time it is what we could call the paradox of human dignity on the one hand we are small and insignificant what is man right after all if God made the heavens and the earth a whole universe by the word of his power Why would he ever take interest in us, given how small and insignificant we are? But then you see there's another side to this. Puny creatures of dust we are, but nevertheless we have been created with remarkable dignity. Look at the language that's used. And notice that it's clearly echoing the creation account of Genesis chapter 1. The creation of the first man, singular, in the Garden of Eden. A significant point. Okay, In verse 6 he says. God has crowned him. With glory and honor. You have given him dominion. Over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. All sheep and oxen. And also the beasts of the field. Birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea. Whatever passes along the paths of the sea. Man. In the beginning. Was crowned with glory. How did God crown the first man, Adam, with glory? Well, if you were with us in our our gender series class a while back, we looked at this extensively, and we saw how this is a biblical theme from Genesis to Revelation, that Adam was crowned with glory in the gift of a bride, in the gift of the first woman. Uh, We see this In the book of Proverbs, we see this celebrated in Song of Songs. We see this in the New Testament, in a passage like 1 Corinthians 11, where Paul, relying on the creation account, refers to woman as the glory of man. And we see the consummate celebration of this in the marriage supper of the Lamb. Man is crowned, Adam was crowned with glory in the gift of a bride, And the language of dominion over the animals reminds us that Adam, our first father, was made to rule, not oppressively, not tyrannically, but so that the earth and his bride would flourish and fill the earth. And as the glory of man, the woman would bring fullness and share in the dominion. Now, the problem, of course, is that Adam, the first man, failed. Instead of Instead of exercising dominion by guarding and keeping the garden, you remember the story, he he watched as the serpent deceived the woman, and then he willfully disobeyed the clear and direct commandment of the Lord. And ever since, sin has warped and ruined our relationship to the world, to one another, and fundamentally to God. And, And really, all of the Psalms, either side of Psalm 8, before and after this psalm, are clear about this sobering reality. They are all candid about sin and the heartache and devastation that sin brings to our lives in this sinful world. But isn't it striking? Isn't it interesting that Psalm 8 doesn't mention any of that? You know, if you were to read Psalm 8 in isolation from the rest of the Psalms or from the rest of the Scripture, you might think that Adam had never sinned. And, and the world was never corrupted. And that is because Psalm 8 is describing the way things are supposed to be. And Psalm 8 is describing the way things will be in the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of Man. Because Jesus is the man spoken of in Psalm 8, the one born of the Virgin Mary. He is the second Adam, the last Adam, crowned with the glory and honor of a blood-bought bride who is his fullness and who will reign with him over a new heavens and a new earth. And he is the one who must rule until everything has been put underneath his feet. But here we are in the, the already not yet, as some call it. And you might be wondering, how can Psalm 8 say this? How can Hebrews chapter 2, verse 6, quote Psalm 8 and say that Jesus was made uh, for a little while lower than the angels and crowned with glory and honor with everything being put in subjection underneath his feet? if you wonder that if you ask that question you're in good company because Hebrews chapter 2 asks that very question how can it identify Jesus as the man who's crowned with glory and honor who's received dominion over all things when the world frankly is in chaos and sin runs amok and creation itself groans under the curse how do we answer that listen did you I wonder if you noticed it when we read it Hebrews chapter 2 verse 9 We do not yet see everything in subjection to him, but we do see him. By faith, we do see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death. So so that by the grace of God, he might taste death forever everyone you see when we read psalm 8 in the light of the teaching of scripture we discover that jesus was the man who was made a little lower than the angels born of a virgin suffered under pontius pilate crucified died and was buried god the son think of it god the eternal son who was made lower than the angels and now having done what the first Adam should have done and did not do, having triumphed over the evil one, crushing him underneath his feet at the cross. Now Jesus is seated at the right hand of God. So listen, listen, this is why we celebrate Christmas. We celebrate Christmas because the Lord came down to be another Adam. A new Adam, a second Adam, the last Adam, the head, the representative of a new humanity. He came to bring nothing short of a new creation and to put things back to the way they are meant to be. And that entails he came to restore us to the dignity of being his image bearers. Because of Jesus' first coming, you see, the original design of God for your life can be achieved. Because of Jesus' first coming, you can share in the dominion of the Son as his glorious bride. You see, Psalm, Psalm 8 not only describes who Jesus Christ is for us, but who we are in him. A new humanity. The image of God restored in us. His first coming shows you, brothers and sisters, that you are not insignificant in His eyes. That you are not unnoticed. That you are not unloved. Here's how loved you are. The God who stands uh, in glory above the heavens, whose fingers hung the planets and stars and set them in their place. That same God came down as a child and lived a life of of humiliation and was mocked and beaten and crucified and then he got up again he rose and and ascended and now reigns on heaven's throne so that you might at last be who God made and saved you to be and that That is what Christmas is for. That's what the gospel gives us. It gives us a new self, a new beginning, a new start, a new place in a world that is coming, a world made new. Jesus came to make you a new creation. Remember what Paul says, if anyone is in Christ, he is new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. And so here are these two themes we find in Psalm 8 that we need to trace out through the rest of Scripture to really fully understand. First, the majesty of God revealed. His majesty fills the earth. His glory is above the heavens, but his majesty is also displayed in weakness. In in humility, God establishes his strength to conquer all of his enemies. And then the second theme, the the dignity of man restored in the Son of Man who came down and was made a little lower than the angels, who, who tasted death so that we might be restored to the dignity of bearing his image in a world made new, ruling and reigning with him in a new heavens and a new earth where the glory of God covers the earth, As the waters cover, cover the sea. This is the good news proclaimed to us in Psalm chapter 8. May we, all, may we all know these realities about God's majesty revealed. And how he restores dignity to humanity in his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we do thank you for becoming a man so that you might rise and restore us thank you that you are now seated on the throne as the god man as our king and redeemer who who not only purchased pardon for us but but as it were blazed the trail of our destiny ahead of us so that we will dwell with you in a new creation and reign with you for all eternity hasten the day of your return lord jesus come quickly